It's been four years since I was last at the Al Smith then. And I have to admit, some things have changed since then. I've heard some people say, uh, Barack, you're not as young as you used to be. Where's that golden smile? Where's that pep in your step? And I say, settle down, Joe. I'm trying to run a cabinet meeting here. <laughs> people seem to be very curious as to how we prepare for the debates. Let me tell you what I do. First, refrain from alcohol for 65 years before the debate. <laughs> Second, find the biggest available straw man and then just mercilessly attack it. Big Bird didn't even see it coming. <laughs> and by the way, in, uh, in the spirit of Sesame Street, the president's remarks tonight are brought to you by the letter O and the number 16 trillion. <laughs> That was Republican Governor Mitt Romney and Democratic President Barack Obama exchanging good-humored barbs at the Alfred E. Smith Memorial Foundation dinner during the 2012 election campaign. Who was Alfred E. Smith? Long before self-professed Catholics Joe Biden, John Kerry, and JFK sought to occupy the White House, Al Smith blazed the trail as America's first Catholic presidential nominee. In this episode of Crown and Crozier, we explore Smith's inspiring life and legacy from his humble beginnings working at the fish market in lower Manhattan to winning the governorship four times to securing the Democratic nomination for president in 1928 to enduring a tidal wave of prejudice on the campaign trail, some of which took the form of crosses set ablaze by the Ku Klux Klan. Our guest is Smith's biographer, Dr. Robert Slayton, Professor Emeritus of History at Chapman University and author of Empire Statesman, The Rise and Redemption of Al Smith. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant. God's first. Dr. Robert Slayton, thanks for joining us on Crown and Crozier. Glad to be here. The midterm elections are approaching in early November. We wanted to do an election-related episode. And rather than just get caught up in the din of current events, uh, we thought, why not remind ourselves uh, of what we, uh, especially us in the, the Catholic community, what, we, what should we be looking for in our elected officials? And we thought, what are some inspiring stories and examples that we can look to to help guide how we cast our ballots and evaluate our candidates? So today's episode is about celebrating and helping to shine a light on someone who is arguably the trailblazer for Catholic politicians in the United States, New York governor and presidential candidate Alfred Emanuel Smith. So to kick us off, perhaps just tell us, why is Al Smith such a significant figure in U.S. political history, not just for Catholics, but why should all Americans know his story? 1920s was a very difficult age in America. Um, it was the height of the KKK, millions of members parading down Washington streets. And um, they were very anti-immigrant, Jews, Catholics, particularly Catholics. Um, and Al Smith stood up more than any other figure of the age and said, these people, his people, had the right to be called Americans. And I remember my parents said they actually remembered the term 100% American. You could be an American, but if you were a Catholic or a Jew, you are not 100% American. Get it? 
very nasty stuff. And he stood up and fought for them and defended them at great risk to himself politically. Is that what inspired you to write about him? How did your, your biography, Empire Statesman, The Rise and Redemption of Al Smith, how did that all come about? Well, I'm a New Yorker, and he was one of the great New Yorkers, and there was no great biography of him, so I stepped in. Well, let's quickly get to know a little bit about Al. Unfortunately, we're not going to have enough time to do justice to his whole life and legacy, uh, but we're going to zero in on some of the highlights. Born in 1873 in the heart of the Fourth Ward of, of New York City, just tell us a little bit about what his childhood and, and what his neighborhood was like. Um, it was a classic immigrant neighborhood and very mixed. Uh, every group under the sun, not just groups were familiar with, Syrians were there, I mean, all kinds of groups. Um, very lively, flourishing neighborhood, very Catholic as well. And Smith's Catholicism was an incredibly humane Catholicism. Um, he believed in generosity. He wasn't narrow. Um, he, he was devout. His grandson, who was a priest, said he didn't talk about his religion, but he lived it. I once saw a piece, uh, uh, some internet uh, piece, saying that he wasn't a good Catholic because he didn't know about encyclicals. And it really angered me because Smith fought for his Catholicism more than some little twerp who wrote that and paid a great price for being Catholic and never backed down from it. He was a wonderful Catholic, um, but he, he wasn't doctrinaire. Um, there's a great story where um, he was on the campaign trail of visiting uh, upstate New York, and um, one of his good friends was Gerald Swope, who was a newspaper publisher, who was Protestant. They pulled the train over in the middle of nowhere, and it was in the middle of winter, and he, Smith and his aides, went out in heavy snow and terrible weather and to get to church. I had to walk miles to get to the church. So they came back frostbitten, wet, damn cold. And there's Swope sitting in front of a fireplace in a smoking jacket and drinking a wonderful, fragrant cup of coffee. And Smith looks at him and said, boys, wouldn't it be terrible if he was right and we were wrong? <laughs> so it was very humane. Just from that anecdote, it sounds like he had a bit of the uh, the Irish humor passed down on him. And he was an Irish Catholic, right? Yes, he was. Well, actually, he, his parents actually, his father was Italian-German. His father died fairly young. His mother really raised him, and she was very Irish. And he identified very much with Irish. So the picture that you paint in your book of, of the neighborhood he grew up in was pretty much kind of a, a, classic, a classic scene of a vibrant very messy in its own kind of lovable way type of neighborhood uh, with people from all walks of life, uh, from all corners of the globe, but, but in particular Europe, uh, a lot of Central European, Eastern European neighbors all around him. You know, one of the, the largest populations of, of Asians and Chinese in, in New York, kind of just up the road and, and all of that mix uh, within a, a very small area within the, the Fourth Ward in, in Manhattan. How did that upbringing uh, shape the way he saw the world and the way he saw other people? Well, good and bad. Um, the good is that he was very tolerant. He grew up in a very mixed neighborhood, and he saw nothing wrong with, you know, use a modern term, diversity. He didn't use it back then, but he believed it. He was part of it. He grew up and he took it for granted. Now, the downside is that when he went out to campaign in 1928, he knew nothing about America. He knew nothing about um, above 14th Street in New York. And he thought the whole world was like the Fourth Ward. It was going to be generous and kind-hearted and diverse. 
And when he was campaigning, they were putting up blazing crosses in front of him, which hurt him very deeply. He didn't realize America was diverse in some nasty ways as well. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment, but uh, it, it sounds like, judging now uh, from your from your your picture of him in the book, I mean, he and his family, like all of the early immigrants um, to the United States, just incredibly hardworking and having to endure incredible hardship and suffering uh, just to make a living in life. And one of his first jobs was working in the fish market. He probably came home smelling like fish, and and he was actually proud of that. He would tell his uh, his snooty colleagues in in the legislature later that. Uh, he was from the fish market in Manhattan. Yeah, I'll get, I'll get back to that in a minute. Can I go back to the Irish, his Irish heritage for a second? Please. He was a very nostalgic Irishman, devoutly Irish, but it was nostalgic. I interviewed Paul O'Dwyer, the great uh, Irish uh, New York lawyer. And O'Dwyer's the real thing. He, um, if you could sit in his law office, you know, usually on the, the coffee table, you got like Time magazine or something like that. They actually had academic Irish history journals. So he told me the story that um, somebody came to interview him on, um, on St. Pat- about St. Patrick's Day. And he really knew his stuff. He really knew Irish history. He said, well, you know, St. Patrick wasn't really Irish. And they said, well, you know, at least he's, um, he will be serving a good Irish food, corned beef and cabbage. Well, that wasn't really Irish. Uh, that was the poorest kind of meat and vegetables you can get, and the Irish were just the poorest of the poor. And so it went. So Smith found out about it, and he said, you know, this wing whippersnapper said he wasn't really Irish and everything complained about this kid mouthing off. His, his Irish was very much nostalgia, but he believed it devoutly. In his own mind, he was very, very Irish. Let's fast forward a bit to... Uh, well, he he's born and raised in Manhattan. He's working at places like Fish Market, uh, scraping his way in the world, uh, breaking a sweat all, all along the way, uh, bringing the money home to the family. Uh, but eventually, uh, he ends up running for public office. And in 1903, he's first elected to the Assembly in New York State. Uh, you fast forward about 10 years later, and he's made it all the way to the the speaker of the lower house in the the New York legislature. What do you think are his greatest accomplishments, kind of the, the signature way in, in which he left his fingerprints during his time in office? And 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 how how did he, you know, what were the qualities that served him well to help him get into the uh, get into public life to begin with? Uh, Smith's is a true American, almost a racial algebra story. He's um, incredibly ignorant and he, he is expected to be a machine uh, tool. He's supposed to stand up when he's asked to stand up, sit down. He's supposed to stand, sit down. And for some reason, he decides he's not going to be an enemy's fool. And he sits down. He's got a grade school education. He does something nobody else does. He reads every bill coming up, every bill. And if it's a writer to another bill, he reads the other bill. If that's a writer to another bill, he goes all the way back. He studies by the end of things. He knows more than anybody about the state's business. Totally self-taught. His great accomplishment in many ways came after the Triangle Shirt Waste Fire. Horrendous event. Over 140 immigrants, uh, workers killed when the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory went up and they burned to death. The fire was raging. Some of them leaped out the window to their deaths. In 9-11, I had to watch, like everybody else, people falling out of the windows of the World Trade Center. It was very hard for me because I had studied it so much in Smith's life to see that happen again. He and Robert Wagner, who went on to create Social Security, 
headed the, the commission looking into it, and they changed New York. They changed America. When you go into movie theater, movie theater has to be dark. That is at a premium. Obviously, um, showing the movie, and yet interrupting the darkness is a sign over every exit in red lit up. That's a fire safety code. That was Al Smith's accomplishment. Um, when you get a fire door, you you always have a bar that you just got to push yourself against. That's Smith and Wagner. Before then, you had a doorknob. Well, the doorknob, first of all, would be manual dexterity. You have to actually turn. And secondly, it might be hot as hell because there's a fire going on outside. With a bar, you can pass out to people who you can just push you through the damn door. The bar, you just got to push against it. That's Smith and Wagner. They changed in America. That's that's one of the recurring themes in your books is how a lot of what Al Smith tackled during his time in office, not just in the governor's seat, but during his time in, in the legislature, a lot of what he took on had ripple effects all across the nation. And you mentioned some of the workplace safety and um, workers' compensation and workers' protection measures uh, that he put in place in, in the aftermath of that, that horrific incident. But but it seems like it was a pattern uh, from his time in office in New York that he became a trailblazer and he became uh, someone who took action that was replicated all across the United States. Maybe not in the immediate aftermath, but over time, uh, you could see a lot of that influence spread. And it even came down to things like like how you run a state to begin with, administrative reform, you know, things that we kind of take for granted today in terms of four-year terms for for governors or uh, the governor kind of being the first one to put in motion a budget proposal and then kicks it over to the legislature. Uh, but it seems like that's a that's a recurring theme and, and legacy from his time in office is, is that uh, that influence spreading elsewhere in, in New York. Smith was really known for being a social reformer and justifiably um, creating parks, setting up hospitals. He really was a great social reformer. But one of the things he learned from his early days of learning how the state was run, he actually was in some ways quite conservative. He became, a, um, an, say, an administrative reformer. The state of New York, when he came in, was an absolute mess. There were 189 different departments. None of them reported to anybody in particular, let alone to the governor. Um, there was, for example, of the Department of Military and Naval Affairs, which is sort of unusual for state government, but it's um, it didn't have anything to do with the Monument Commission, Mills Irish Brigade, Adjutant General's Office, Armory Commission, New State Monuments Commission, um, state expenditures for veterans of Civil War and Spanish America, headed by two separate bodies, of course. And he codified a lot in his system of 14 cabinet posts where people reported up the line to the cabinet officials who reported to them. And he created all of this. He really turned New York into a modern administrative mechanism. Among the other things that uh, that really leaps out from the book, a couple of things. One, as you just say, you know, once he's elected governor in 1919 and, and goes on to serve four two-year terms throughout the 1920s, you can look back on his record and there's something for everyone to love, for conservatives and liberals alike, conservatives who are the, the strong proponents of Small government, uh, no waste. I mean, you look at what he accomplished in the administrative reform area, and there's lots to commend him. And then for other folks, for some liberal folks, you look at the record that he established in terms of appointments and making a place for people from all walks of life, all ethnicities and, and both sexes. I mean, what he did for women 
around the time when women were have, had finally secured the right to vote happened just on the threshold of him becoming governor. And he took that ball and ran with it. Some of his closest advisors were women. He appointed women to positions of power. How do you reflect on on that legacy? And, and is that yet again another example of him kind of establishing precedents, which just became commonplace in, in the, the decades to follow in our politics? Well, a couple of things you hit on. Um, Walter Lippmann, the great journalist, described Al Smith as what a conservative ought to be if he knew his business. What <laughs> Al did, again, it was humane. He said, I know how to cut down the expenses of the state. I can do it. But I want somebody to pick out for me what activity the state must suffer when I do it. I will certainly never do it at the expense of the helpless and defenseless who cannot come back to me. Okay, He would cut down. He would be conservative but he would do the expense of the people. Now, as to women, in 1928, when he ran for president, his campaign manager was a woman. Okay, that was unprecedented until very recently. Also, his key staff, his kitchen cabinet, his top advisors, were all Jewish. If you look at his appointments, the majority of them are Protestant. He believed in equality. He didn't believe in you know, sticking to some dogmatic attribute. And among the things that uh, that I'm struck with as well, particularly as he progresses uh, and, and gets more familiar, gets more familiar and confident and comfortable in the governor's chair, is just how much change was happening, not just in New York but all across the nation at that time during his tenure. One, New York was the most industrialized state in the union at that point, but we were starting to see the industrial revolution and industrialization starting to take root in more states. And in conjunction with that, uh, it was the time where the U.S. Census reported that for the first time in the nation's history, more than half of Americans were living in cities. And then you look at on the technology side, greater use of the automotive, the expansion of highways, all of this was taking place under his watch. You know, radio was becoming a more common medium for the transmission of news and information. And then there was uh, prohibition. There was the great debate around prohibition and the place of alcohol in our lives. And, and all of this was, was taking place under his watch. And he was having to navigate through all of these challenges and, and show leadership. That kind of takes us to uh, the 1928 president election, because it seems that the way he tackled all of these trends and these challenges and, and these evolutions in American society, it really positioned him quite favorably to be a forerunner for the Democratic nomination in 1928. Do you think that's a, that's a pretty good uh, description of the context going into that election? Well, no, because um, all those things were good. I mean, the economy was booming in the 20s until the Great Crash, of course, um, but it was booming. I mean, this is the age when the car comes to America and the radio comes to America. But that caused enormous um, disjuncture. People were terrified by this stuff, very frightened. Um, the 1920 census is the first census in American history where 51 percent of the population lives in cities. Now, just for the record, their definition of cities was any place with 2,500 or more people. I've lived in apartment buildings bigger than that. Okay, <laughs> um, so you know, after the census, this is supposed to be a reapportionment. 1920 census, the only census in American history where they did not do reapportionment. The, the uh, smaller states just blocked it. We don't want the city people to have more delegates in Congress. So they just blocked it. It was incredibly controversial. So yes, Smith was the voice of progress. He was the candidate of progress, of change, accepting the new America, accepting um, all kinds of things. 
And some stuff he didn't deal with, he couldn't deal well with radio. He was a wonderful speaker on a stage. He was incredibly dynamic. He acted out things. Um, in radio, you had to sit in front of the microphone and not move, which drove him crazy, just drove him crazy. Yeah, he had to deal with it. He was definitely um, someone who stood for progress, and a lot of America didn't want progress, didn't really want progress at all. Well, I think that's kind of a good segue into uh, spending time on, on what he has come to be known for uh, most greatly in the, the the history books, securing the nomination, being the first Catholic to secure the presidential nomination and, and that taking place in the 1928 election. Th there's one line from your book uh, that I, I think re really captures the atmosphere. You said that in the 1928 Democratic Convention, he won the nomination. His stock was high. He had a very strong following lots of positive accolades and they're almost they're almost in some quarters seem to be a certain aura an air of inevitability about his nomination but he won the nomination at the same time he didn't necessarily win his party over can you elaborate a little bit more on that well the democratic party was the party of the confederacy as well keep in mind it was incredibly split party it was this party of northern urban uh, democrats was also the party of the Old South that had fought against Reconstruction, um, and he did not win them over at all. The big issue in the 1920 election was having a Catholic run for president, and it was incredible anger that somebody who was, that if it was a Catholic, he would um, follow the dictates of a foreign pope. He wouldn't obey the Constitution, he would listen only to a foreign uh, pontiff. It was a cartoon and showed it was a cabinet meeting if Al was president, it's the cabinet room in Washington. You see it at a window in the background. And seated at the head of the table is the Pope. And all around it are priests and monsignors. And Al is on the back, background in a bellboy's uniform. And he's carrying a tray with a bottle of whiskey on it. Very, very nasty stuff. Very, very nasty stuff. You cite an, an extraordinary number of examples of the bigotry he encountered on the campaign trail. I mean, these editorial cartoons that were run in papers. You mentioned earlier in the conversation around how the members of the KKK would follow him around at campaign stops and, you know, he would be pulling out of the train station and there you would see burning crosses on the horizon. How did he handle this prejudice? How did he react to it? Honorably, honorably. He stood up and he gave a speech. He didn't back down and said, you can't do this. This is America for crying out loud. You can't do this. If you want to oppose me because you don't agree with my positions, you're welcome to do it. But to oppose me because of my religion, that's just not American. And he stood up right in the middle of enemy's country and said what America stood for, what we should have stood for. And what he ran into was just a hot firestorm of abuse, of just terrible abuse. In Atlanta, ministers issued a statement, you cannot nail us to a Roman cross and submerge us in a sea of rum. Because you know all Catholics are drunkards. That's a fact. You know that. You know? Okay. Wesleyan uh, Christian advocate called Republicans the party of the upper world um, and vote for the GOP was a vote for the kingdom of God. Terrible stuff. And there were, there were some folks at the time who were saying, hey, you know, it, it's not that we don't like his faith. It's just that he's in favor of alcohol. Do you think those defenses ca carry any weight with the benefit of history? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Let me, let me continue. The stuff on Catholicism is just so dire. One of my favorites is... Um, one person said he was opposed to Smith. He said, well, they said, well, and they say he's a Catholic. 
They said, well, what is a Catholic? They said, damn if I know, I'm just opposed to it. William Walt, the great social worker, wrote a friend move. She called, the organized bigotry, the like of which I've never seen. I feel as if some poison gas has spread over us, over us and our democracy will suffer from this for many years to come, which was right. Frances Perkins, who was first uh, female cabinet official, Secretary of Labor at Roosevelt, she campaigned in Maryland. That's the oldest Catholic settlement in America. Encountered what she called some of the most terrible, fantastic prejudices and dreadful yarns I've ever heard. I pointed out to me the estate which had purchased for the Pope and where the Pope was coming as soon as Smith was elected. It was pointed out to us, know it for a fact. Marvin Jones, Texas Democrat, good liberal, very prominent in the New Deal, goes into a drugstore's hometown, Ramarillo. He's chatting with the druggist. He says, you're going to vote for who are you going to vote for? Guys, ask him. He said, who are you going to vote for? He says, I'm going to vote for Smith. Proprietor looks at him and goes, we've been fighting that bunch for 2,000 years. You think I'm going to turn the government over them? Well, you know, and Smith had to deal with this. He just had to deal with it. And he dealt with it. He dealt with it honorably, and it seemed to have cost him. And he lost that election by a landslide, only only carrying eight of the 48 states and uh, not even cracking into the triple digits for electoral college votes. You, you write in your book that Al Smith lost in 1928 because of his religion and because of the people he stood up for. Do you think being mindful of that and, and knowing he could stand behind that, was that consolation to him or how, how did he handle that loss? He was, he was brokenhearted. Um, keep in mind, he lost New York State, his beloved New York State, that, that he should have gotten, and even lost, that broke his heart like nothing else. It wasn't just that he lost, it was that he lost dirty. He lost on issues he didn't think America should have been involved in. He said, you don't like my policy on park, you don't like my policy on schools, that's one thing, I can debate that with you. But to come after me because I'm a Catholic, because I'm an immigrant, because I support uh, post prohibition, that's nasty. That, that I shouldn't have lost because of that. So it was broken heart, very broken heart. If you don't mind, let's uh, spend the, the remainder of our time talking about his legacy. This was a good man. This was a, a good man who was a great public servant. We often say in the Catholic tradition that uh, there are three. There are generally three common paths uh, that we follow in our pursuit of the Lord. It's either truth, goodness, or beauty. And it seemed for Al that his path to holiness was goodness. Do you think that's a fair statement? Um, I would, of those three, I would definitely say it was not beauty. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I would say truth also. You know, the mm. famous great lines speak to truth to power. Um, he stood up and he spoke the truth, even when it wasn't a popular thing to do it. And I give him credit for it. So, yeah, I would include truth in that as well. And goodness, of course. In our present time, we're recording this episode when there's uh, an occupant in the White House who professes the Catholic faith. And uh, certainly in the Catholic community, we have very lively debates about uh, the legacy of and uh, or the current the current conduct or nature of engagement by Catholic officials uh, and, and looking in the past uh, to the other Catholic president, JFK, you know, when I, when I think of JFK and Joe Biden and, and Al Smith and, and John Kerry and another presidential nominee, you know, I, I just think of, I think of contrast in terms of what really sets Al Smith apart. And 
in your book, you, you talk about when he was really put on the hot seat in 1927 and uh, the magazine Atlantic uh, ran a letter from someone who was really challenging Smith and saying, look, you're Catholic. You say you're Catholic and you say you're an American patriot. Those two are mutually exclusive. And Al writes this lengthy response and this lengthy rebuttal. And, and my favorite line from that letter is the essence of my faith. I'm quoting the essence of my faith is built upon the commandments of God. The law of the land is built upon the commandments of God. There can be no conflict between them, end quote. And I contrast that with JFK's famous line uh, when he was on the campaign trail, where he was a bit more, where he was also on the defensive. And he had that quotation around, I don't speak for my church and, and my church doesn't speak for me. I mean, that's that's one of the famous statements from, from JFK. And if we fast forward to the president, it's certainly no secret that there are some challenges in terms of President Biden being challenged and admonished by Catholic bishops in the U.S. And, and even by the Pope in Rome saying, look, you're dangerously out of step with the teaching of our church and through public policy that you're pursuing. So I see Smith as, as really standing separate from JFK and, and Joe Biden in that regard. And, 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 and I'm very drawn to that. I'm, I'm very drawn to how he stood fast and he stood firm and there, there wasn't any kind of qualification or defensiveness. I mean, he, he held his ground. You know, what, what do you make of all that? I would agree. You look at the examples you just gave on Biden. Those are disagreements with him because of his policies. They say, you're, you're not following these uh, ideals. You're not following these principles. Okay, that, that's a disagreement on policy. Uh, nobody's attacking him because he's a Catholic. They may say, you're not a good Catholic. They may say, um, Catholic should be following this scripture. But nobody's saying, as a Catholic, you shouldn't even be the damn president. Okay, mm. Smith is running into something much more fundamental. As a Catholic, he didn't have a right to be an American. He didn't have a right to be president. JFK had two great benefits that Smith didn't have. First of all, JFK was a veteran. Um, Smith was not a veteran. And JFK was a war hero. Um, and he could prove it. If you asked whether or not he was an American, he pointed to PT-109. And, you know, that proved it definitively. The other thing is that JFK particularly came after the Holocaust. Um, after the Holocaust, when we saw the concentration camps, there was a sense, you know, bigotry can lead to horrible things. It's not mm -hmm. a good thing. There was still definitely anti-Catholic bigotry, anti-Semitic bigotry after the Holocaust, but it was toned down quite a bit. And Smith ran into just the bulk of this. He didn't have any of these things to mitigate. He just ran into the worst storm of all. You know, as I say, he's the only one where they fundamentally objected to him, not to his policy, just to the fact that he was a Catholic. Just being a Catholic was bad enough. It was bad enough to exclude him. Yeah, I mean, certainly when you put it that way, the fact that JFK and Joe Biden didn't have to put up with the KKK hounding them on the campaign trail, that's just... A, a significant advantage. <laughs> I haven't seen anybody um, object to Biden. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of criticism of Biden, but I haven't seen anybody saying, no, you're wrong because you are a Catholic. Nothing more than mm. that. Just being a Catholic makes you bad. And Smith had to deal with that. Well, one other thing uh, in terms of his legacy and what you, you, you draw out so compellingly in the book, I have to admit a lot of life bulbs went off for me reading your biography and understanding how the Democratic Party commanded such loyalty and allegiance and participation from immigrants and minorities and the outcasts from society. I get it. I get it now. I get it. Looking at 
Al Smith's legacy in life, why so many people would have been attracted to the Democratic Party because of the way he drew people in in New York State and across the nation as well. One person who followed her, she said, people come out and cry, just cry. And it was because he stood up for them. He, um, he did something amazing, which is still true today. If you look at the debates over all kinds of minorities, standing up and saying, you're accepted. You're an American, for crying out loud. Um, not a partial American, not a half-ass American. You're as good an American as you or I. And he did that, and that was something very special at that time in the 1920s. Well, it's been nearly 100 years since Al Smith ran for president with the benefit of, of that much hindsight. You know, if he was here walking among us today, you know, what, what wisdom do you think he would seek to impart, particularly as it relates to our politics and the state of them and, and how we conduct ourselves in, in the public square? Smith was a human being, a human being going through different periods of their life. As he got older, after the 28 loss, he became very bitter and very ugly. So let's at least pick on him when he was at his height in the 1920s as governor. Um, I think he would have asked us to be more gentle. Um, I think he would have asked us to be more honorable. And I think he would have accepted immigrants of all kinds a lot more because he had a lot of experience with that. He also would have done it with a, with a great sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, which we could all use a greater dose of. Smith had a wonderful sense of humor. I'd like to give you two examples of how he used his humor. He's in the legislature in the middle of a very intense debate. And one of the upstate patricians, an absolute idiot, comes running and interrupting things. Goes, boys, boys, Cornell just won the big race. Totally out of touch. And one of his opponents on the Republican side says, doesn't mean anything to me. I'm a Yale man. Another guy, I'm a Harvard man. Another guy, I'm a U of M man. Now, Smith has a great school education. So they say, um, you know, I hope we're not... Uh, disturbing you, putting you down. Smith looks at him and says, no, I'm an FFM man myself. And they say, I'm not familiar with the school. What school is that? Fulton Fish Market. Let's get on with the business, okay? The, the Fulton Fish Market, of course, being his, his local, where the local fishmongers were in the fourth ward, right? Right, right. He had worked there, yeah. And this is my favorite. I'm not even sure how accurate the exact wording is this different version. They're debating um, workman's compensation. He gets past the first workman's compensation bill in New York City history. So one of his opponents, an upstate Republican, turns to Smith and goes, Mr. Tammany leader, all Democrats were Tammany leaders, okay. He says, what good is workman's compensation to the 350,000 men at work? Now that's a red herring, because whatever the merits of workman's compensation, it only applied to those who were employed. Smith replied without hesitation, and I've got to quote this exactly. Mr. Speaker, I was walking down Park Row one night, and a man came up to me and hit me on the shoulder and said, Hello, Al, what you'd rather be? A hammock full of white doorknobs, a cellar full of stepladders, or a piece of dry ice? I said I'd rather be a fish, because no matter how thick plate glass is, you can always break it with a hammer. You get it? No, of course not. Neither do I. His opponent, who was angry, said, I don't get the point of the gentleman's remark. And Smith replied very calmly and said, this is just my point. My answer is this to your question. Let's get on with real business. <laughs> Quick on his feet. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing, the, thank you for sharing those stories and those anecdotes. Uh, and again, thank you for the great gift that you've given us in telling the story of a good man and a truly faithful and faith-filled public servant. We appreciate your time. 
I got to tell you, working on this was a labor of love. I enjoyed every, I did it for 11 years. I enjoyed every minute of it. Well, we are grateful. We are grateful for your gift. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in, and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.